one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. everyone and welcome to the History of England episode 317, Well Worth a Mess. Just to kick things off, please don't forget our sponsored Thames Walk to raise money for the Anthony Nolan charity to help me to help them for what they did for me and countless others with blood cancer. If you're up for donating a bit of cash then please go to our Just Giving site at justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash shedcasters or go to my website or Facebook site where you'll find a link. And thank you in advance. Alors, messieurs, mesdames, Paris vaut bien une messe. I would figure this must be one of the most famous lines in French history, second only to de croissant, un café au lait et un gitin, s'il vous plaît. Am I wrong? Paris is indeed well worth a mess. Obviously, there's a full and frank exchange of views over beer and sandwiches about whether or not he actually said the words. But hey, it's the sentiment that counts, I guess. Henry's declaration of July 1593 might be seen as a cynical grab for power, a betrayal of the Huguenot cause for which he had fought for so long. But it seems well attested that Henry actually agonised over the decision and that very influential in his choice was his lover and confidant, Gabriel Destrey. It has to be said that despite being a married man, Henry IV was rather subject to a wandering eye, and indeed subject to a wandering of many other organs. His list of mistresses has hit 56. But Gabrielle's relationship with him was something special. She had been Henry's constant companion during the wars, albeit that she was a Catholic sharing his daily dangers. It was her view that peace could not come to France while its king was Protestant. And who is to say she was wrong? The Huguenots were a powerful movement in France, over a million people probably, but still, that was but 10% of the population. Whether cynical or not, and however strong one's identification with the cause of Protestantism might or might not be, this had to be the right decision, didn't it? Because after Henry was finally crowned as the new Catholic King of France in February 1594, his conversion having finally won him access to Paris, it brought an end to the civil wars that had racked its citizens and caused untold death and destruction for over 50 years. I was interested to learn, just to land you in a digression within a digression, that technically Henry of Navarre could not in fact convert at all, because he had been baptised a Catholic 
and so in turning to Protestantism, he was therefore apostate and could not try a second time. So, when he appealed to the Pope for his Catholic membership card, Philip's Spanish representatives tried to fight it, which is both unfriendly and... Was it bright? Fortunately, Clement VIII had a brain and gave the dispensation required. Now don't for a moment imagine that with one wave of the royal sceptre all discord was banished from France. Good Lord, not a bit of it, mes amis. Catholics deeply resented any suggestion that Protestants should be good for anything other than target practice and the Huguenot keenly felt their second-class status and seeing their leader changing his spots must have been utterly gutting. I'd certainly have burned my membership card on the steps of the Hôtel de Ville. But in the Edict of Nantes in 1598, Henry would make a brave attempt to enforce toleration, though in a format that rather emphasised separation. But Protestants had full civil rights, the right to safe havens such as the city of La Rochelle, which they could fortify to defend themselves. Although Catholicism remained the state religion, unlike in England and Ireland, Catholics were not disbarred from public office. It's not Henry IV's fault that this brave attempt at toleration would fail. It would rather be the fault of the absolutism and nation-building of Louis XIV. I realise I'm drifting into what now might be called a history of France, but it's deeply relevant to England. The English had an indication from their agents that this might happen. Remember that an English contingent under John Norris had been fighting continuously alongside the French. When it happened, Elizabeth professed herself to be appalled. She wrote to Henry a letter from which a certain element of peeve manages to peek out. Ah, what griefs! What regrets! Oh, what groanings felt I in my soul at the sound of such news as Morlin has told me! My God! Is it possible that any worldly respect should efface the terror with which the fear of God threatens us? Can we, with any reason, expect a good sequel from such an act so iniquitous? This is classic Elizabeth. The outrage on a personal level may well have been heartfelt. After all, Elizabeth could have taken this way out in 1559, but chose not to do so. But she understood. And she understood also that this didn't really change anything as far as the focus of English policy was concerned. The enemy was still Spain. Her ally France would be strengthened in the battle against that enemy, and while the Spanish were still in France, the alliance would continue. For Henry IV, he could now use that most ancient of techniques to unify a nation and distract them from their own problems and divisions. He could play the external enemy card, the card of war. We are all Frenchmen and fellow citizens of the same fatherland. Thus, we must join together in reason and in new kindness and renounce that severity and cruelty which only serves to inflame men. I don't know how much we'll return to Henry IV, so it might be worth noting that his reputation stands high as one of the greatest of France's monarchs, and that the hatred directed him at the start of his reign had turned to love by the end of it. But nonetheless, he would also 
be assassinated, like his predecessor, by a Catholic fanatic in 1610. For the moment, though, England remained on Team Henry, particularly because the Spanish were in Brittany, landing 4,000 men on a peninsula and constructing a fort which dominated the port of Brest and the Brest Roads. Now, for the English, this was a source of major panic. Such ports made England vulnerable to raids and attacks on the West Country, and indeed, Spain did duly raid the West Country in 1595, and it was therefore with some relief that a joint French and English force finally destroyed the fortress, putting pretty much all of the 400 garrison to the sword. By this time, then, the English had done their job in France, playing a secondary but significant role in sustaining the French in their hour of maximum danger. Now, with the Catholic League in retreat and France uniting behind Henry, English support was very much less critical to Henry. However, cooperation between England, France and the Dutch Republic continued, and the capture of Calais by the Spanish stung Elizabeth into action, since this was another launchpad for Spanish raids. So, in 1596, the Triple Alliance was signed, though it would prove to be one of the shorter-lasting agreements in world history. Interestingly, it is through this alliance between France, the Dutch Republic and England that Elizabeth finally recognised the Dutch Republic as a legal entity. It had taken a while. And what of the war at sea? Well, since 1593, a plan had been gestating on the template of the successes of yesteryear to be carried out by two of England's most famous sea dogs, Drake on the 550-tonne Defiance and Hawkins on the 600-tonne Garland, along with a major force of ships and men. Surely they could not fail, as they finally sailed for Panama in August 1595, there to seize Nombre de Dios again and use it as a base to seize Spanish treasure fleets. They were given a strict instruction to return within six months, because a fresh armada was expected from Spain. The very idea of an expedition returning from the Caribbean in six months seems wildly optimistic. If the Spanish did come, and Drake and Hawkins were needed well, then there'd probably be trouble. In the Caribbean, though, Drake and Hawkins found life much harder than they'd done before, and the Spanish were forewarned and better prepared. An English attack was repulsed from San Juan, and then further disaster struck when John Hawkins, one of the fathers of the English Navy, but also England's first slave trader, died in November 1595. He also left behind him an institution called Chatham's Chest, a sort of pensions policy whereby 10% of seamen's wages were kept back for later needs. It was called that because the money was kept in a chest. He also incidentally founded a hospital in Chatham, which you can still visit. I was also very interested to learn that John Hawkins' descendant, Andrew Hawkins, knelt in chains in front of a crowd of 25,000 in the Gambia in 2006 to ask forgiveness for his ancestors' actions in the slave trade and had his chains symbolically removed by the Gambian vice-president. Back in 1595 and 6, things got no better for Drake as he ploughed his by now lonely furrow. Although he managed to capture Nombre de Dios, the Spanish defeated his attempt to cross the Isthmus, and in January 1596, Drake died of dysentery. And much against his wishes, he was buried at sea. His fleet limped home, to return by May of the same year, the expedition a complete failure. And so, farewell to Drake from our story. 
It's been a pleasure to make his acquaintance once more, but I think we've done enough on his historiography, so I'll leave it at that. Shortly after they returned, another English expedition was making its way towards Spain with fire in its belly. This time a massive armada of 120 ships, so, you know, pretty much the same size as the Gran Armada, with 17 provided by the Queen and a contingent also from the Dutch Republic. So this was once more an Anglo-Dutch enterprise. It had strict orders to do no more than meet the royal objectives, to have no truck with wandering off to do a little bit of light raiding. Elizabeth and the Privy Council were terrified that the new armadas were on their way from Spain, either to England or, more likely, to Ireland. And Ireland, after 50 years of cutting up rough, was set to cut up rough once more. So, military Spanish expeditions to Ireland were distinctly unpopular with the English. So, the task of the expedition was to destroy as many Spanish ships as possible to spike that Spanish threat. This was an expedition for which Essex had been lobbying for some time, desperate to make his mark on history. And indeed, this time he was part of it, and an approved part this time. But Elizabeth still knew her man, and she made Lord Howard the commander of the expedition, not Essex. Now, it was, against the run of play a little bit, well organised and successful. They focused on Cardiz, and their arrival was a complete surprise. The performance of the English fleet for once lived up to the hype, the Spanish ships in the outer harbour were destroyed, and by the end of the campaign, 13 warships, 11 Indies ships, and numerous smaller craft had been destroyed. A landing force carried the town as well, and although our old friend Medina Sidonia arrived with an army, he could do nothing to dislodge the invaders, whose control, discipline and behaviour towards the locals was exemplary, slightly surprisingly. The return for the Queen was rather reduced when the Spanish fired 36 of their merchant ships to avoid their capture, but of course, the consequential impact on an already strangled Spanish commerce was therefore significant. On their way home, Essex insisted on trying to capture the town of Faro in Portugal, popular holiday location these days, of course, for the English. The expedition wasn't a great success, but apparently Essex raided the library of Bishop Jerome Osorius of many precious and rare books that would one day find their way to the Bodleian Library, stealing library books is a fine student tradition, obviously. Once again, the news that a foreign power had captured a major Spanish city with impunity and held it seemingly at their leisure was received with fury and humiliation at Philip's court. The treasure fleets were severely disrupted for a year and it probably played a part in Philip's third declaration of bankruptcy of his reign. But nonetheless, despite the pain, this time Philip was able to strike back with a second armada, as big as the 1588 version, which set off for England in the autumn of 1596. The situation was pretty desperate. Howard's ships were unavailable, refitting after their venture to Cardiz. Now this time, the wind really did intervene and help England out of a hole. The 1596 armada was caught on a lee shore in a storm on the 18th of October and it lost more than 30 ships. God did indeed, this time, breathe. 
The following year, 1597, saw a similar pattern. Essex persuaded Elizabeth to launch a great fleet again to prevent the Spanish from launching a new armada, but this time Essex was in command and made something of a horlick to the whole thing. His fleet was battered by storms, which was obviously not his fault, but once reassembled outside Lisbon, he decided to wander off to the Azores without any real rationale for so doing, on the assumption that the Spanish could not sail this year. The Azores thing didn't go well at all, but never mind, no harm done, thought Essex, and he wandered back to Blighty. To discover a queen who was distinctly bitey, because news had reached England that despite Essex's breezy optimism, Don Martin de Padilla had sailed with a massive 136 ships and 9,000 troops, with the plan to make a base at Falmouth. Essex was received very coldly indeed by the Queen, which is kind of unsurprising, really. God, though, was in a breathy mood again, and he had another go. Just 30 miles from the Lizard Peninsula in Cornwall, the Spanish fleet was hit by a storm, 26 of them sank, and the rest fled. The overall impression is that neither side here were landing a punch, England's efforts were distinctly hit and miss, and even when a punch landed, as at Cardiz, it hardly threatened to lay the Goliath out. But that's not to say there was no impact. Trade in Castile and Aragon continued to be strangled, the wealth of Philip's heartland Castile sucked away. Even the fleets were a bit of a mess in Spain. Now, I realise this sounds counterintuitive, given that they'd launched two armadas and they'd built the Twelve Apostles. But Richard Hawkins, a prisoner in Spain, was alive to their real problems and situation. If Spain make a navy, three years is needful to join shipping and those to be bought, embargoed or hired from Flemings, Venetians, Genoese or Argotese. For Spain is utterly without shipping of regard. Of men there is no kingdom that of this day is so poor of mariners and gunners there is not a ship which is not partly furnished with Flemish and English. Just to add more salt to the wound, Morris of Nassau was making the Spanish suffer in the Low Countries, with towns falling in a steady stream. The problem was not necessarily exceptional military prowess on behalf of the Dutch, but the absence of effective opposition. The Spanish armies were overstretched and underfunded and over there, prone to mutiny, and demoralised with the lack of supplies. The papal legate in Brussels remarked, We can say this progress of the Protestants stems more from their diligence and energy than from their military strength, but even more, it stems from the absence of any obstacle. So, what to do? When considering his three enemies, England, Spain and France, even Philip could see that the advice of Meatloaf was sound. Two out of three ain't bad, along with the implication that I'm sure was in Mr Loaf's mind that three out of three is sadly unobtainable. Though three out of three is unobtainable, I would suggest, is an excellent lyric for a love song if any songwriters are out there and you can have that one for free. Anyway, one of these enemies would essentially have to go. The Low Countries were, of course, Habsburg, so these rebels and heretical rebels at that could not be allowed to win. 
The English were horrid heretics to boot. And anyway, a new strategy was becoming available through the activities of one Hugh O'Neill, Earl of Tyrone. The prospect of doing the English real damage through Ireland was looking increasingly shiny and bright. And look, almost as soon as the ink was dry on the Triple Alliance, Henry IV was opening negotiations with the Spanish for a peace. And they talk about perfidious Albion, eh? But furthermore, war with France was looking increasingly unattractive. The Catholic League had collapsed, the King was now a Catholic, so, you know, job done, and once more France, Bourbon France now, of course, rather than Valois France, was looking like a difficult beast to take on. And so, on May the 2nd, 1598, the Peace of Vervins was signed between France and Spain, and the Dutch and the English were once again left alone. Philip, meanwhile, had concluded an agreement with his bankers in February, and so the assault on the United Provinces began in earnest once more, with several towns falling in the Duchy of Cleves. Now, on the 13th of September 1598, Philip II died. I don't know about you, but I'm going to miss the old bugger. He's been around for ages. He died, as he'd lived, in a religious fervour. During his last illness, he confessed constantly, including a three-day session on one occasion. He was desperate to die fully conscious, and his wish was granted as he held and kissed a crucifix to the last moment, until an observer noticed that he gave two or three gasps and his saintly spirit left him to enjoy eternal life. In 1605, one of his advisers looked back and commented, With the dawn of that most happy day, the new king assumed power. He began to govern the greatest empire under the sun, because if he had sent letters announcing the news of his father's death, from the point where the sun rises to where it sets, returning to the same place, he would have found his subjects to receive them anywhere. Through this quote, Geoffrey Parker reminds me what you lot probably know already, that the empire in which the sun never set was in fact not the British Empire originally, but the Habsburg Empire. Good golly, Miss Molly. Now, Philip's legacy has been much debated. Criticism wasn't slow to come at the time, one commenting caustically of 30 million wasted in the bogs of Flanders. Although others were more positive, my impression is that my Bezzy Jeff would consider Philip to have sacrificed the wealth and future of Spain on the altar of his pride, religion and what he describes as messianic imperialism. But he also notes... Hundreds of people have tried to evaluate the place of Philip II in history and legend, some seeing him as a saint and a hero who deserved a prominent place at God's right hand, others a sinner and a villain who deserved to rot in hell. So, I suppose, controversial might be the super summary. His successor was his son, Philip III, called the Pious, which is a little worrying since his dad was pretty pious and didn't get such a soubriquet, so alarmingly it could be that Philip III actually managed to take it up a gear in the piety front, which would be impressive. Anyway, if Philip aimed to match his pops in piety, he also aimed to do the same in terms of messianic imperialism, 
Like a new football manager, he aimed to begin his reign with a few good wins to keep the board thinking they'd made the right decision, and he launched an offensive in the Netherlands. And following in his father's footsteps, and not realising that in fact Mr Loaf should have sung that two out of two is also unobtainable, he also launched an armada destined for Ireland of a 100 ships and 25,000 men no less. He got no further than the Azores. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. But still, that mention of Ireland means that I must turn back at last to Ireland because you and I need to talk about the Nine Years' War or Tyrone's Rebellion, call it as you will. Now then, where were we? Just to do a bit of an update, catch up, make sure we're on the same page, that sort of thing. We'd done a couple of episodes on Elizabethan Ireland and a bit of a bloodbath it was too, the age of atrocity, as David Edward calls it. We'd seen the policy of Henry VIII and Cromwell steadily and quite comprehensively running into the sand. That is, the policy of turning Ireland into a version of England. That meant in practice, or in theory, that Gaelic lords would surrender their lands to their new Tudor king and receive them back as an English lord, complete with English title. At the same time, an English-style administration would be introduced, with the country neatly divided up into shires, with regional councils as applicable and required. And, of course, the Parliament and the Irish Privy Council. All sounds very easy, doesn't it? Sadly, of course... To succeed, the policy would have needed to be implemented with great care and sensitivity, and even then, there can have been no certainty of success. At root, there lay a very fundamental difference between Gaelic lordship and land ownership and the English model, and many Gaelic lords simply refused to abandon centuries of culture. Some did try, and a few of them succeeded, the earls of Thomond and Clan Rickard, for example, and the earls of Ormond but more were pushed into rebellion by gross and brutal English mismanagement as Ireland became subject to waves of Elizabethan adventurers who abused martial law in an escalating circle of violence between rebels like Fitzmorris and their would-be oppressors. Although the English remained committed to the idea of assimilation along the model of progress in Wales, which they frequently referenced at the time, plantations and religion and the failure to give Gaelic-Irish and the Old English a proper role in government continually frustrated attempts to build the new society. It is worth noting, by the way, that as I believe I may have mentioned, that what was happening in Ireland was not unique. It might be seen as part of the 16th century European process of nation-forming France, Spain, Scotland, as well as England, were trying to standardise administration and harness the potential for raising revenue. Now, by the time we left the story and at the end of the 1580s, not all was yet lost, possibly, perhaps. In particular, there remained Ulster. Despite the rebellion of Shane O'Neill, Elizabeth and the English government had high hopes that the son of Matthew O'Neill, 
the Baron of Dungannon would come up trumps and remain loyal to the English. And as war with Spain sucked England dry of resources, it was critical that they did not get embroiled in another round of expensive rebellion, repression and violence. However, in a piece of personally dramatic bad planning, we're not going to start the story of Hugh O'Neill until next week, because I thought it might be best to give you an example of what it would have been like for an Irish lordly family trying to make a way in Elizabethan Ireland without losing their identity or their heads. It's not the most tremendously typical example, I have to say, because it's also a very unusual example of a woman's experience. The woman in question is Gronje Niemal. I'm also going to tell you this story because one of you out there suggested that I do so. Sadly, my memory is so rubbish, even a goldfish would despair, so I can't remember who it was. Sorry about that, but whoever you are, take a gold pineapple. So, Gronje Niemala, then. Firstly, it's been a bit of a thing finding out a credible story because myth and legend has encrusted her story like barnacles on a boat's bottom. So, if you're looking for the oracle, I have taken it to be one Mary O'Dowd in the Oxford database of national biography. So, forgive me if I miss some exciting parts of her tale. It may also be significant that we only have English sources for her life. She doesn't appear in Irish annals, and that might mean her significance has been overplayed. But look, the significance of Gronje, as far as I can see, quite apart from how unusual it was for her to assume such a leadership role for a woman at that time, is that her life demonstrates the shoals and eddies and currents a landed family in Elizabethan Ireland had to negotiate. Traditional loyalties and turf wars with Gaelic families, the often predatory and off-grid behaviour of the English supposedly carrying out an impartial administrative role, and the Elizabethan court. Our story so far has been thick with earls that come a cropper because they make the wrong move at the wrong moment, such as the extinction of the Desmonds, for example. Gronje may have been born around 1530 into the Nimal family, among the green and red of Mayo, just to sneak in a saw doctor's line, and the family held land on the coast. Part of their income lay in taxing the fishermen who wanted to catch off their coast, and for this reason, Gronje's reputation very much includes a piratical, seafaring strand. At one stage, indeed, she would offer the use of her three galleys and 200 men to Henry Sidney, the English deputy. Sidney was duly impressed, though he did not take her up on the offer. The legend is that when young, her father tried to stop her going to sea by saying her hair would get caught in the rigging, so she cut her hair off. Who knows? But it's all part of the profile of a powerful person who took control of her life and those around her. We don't know much of Gronje's early life, although later in life we'll see that she could use Latin fluently, so it seems as though she was well-educated. By the 1540s, she was married to one Donal O'Flaherty, a good marriage because Donal was the taniste of the O'Flaherty. They had children, certainly one at least, called Yoan, maybe more. But local warfare claimed her husband when he seems to have been ambushed by a rival family, the Joyces, with whom they'd been struggling for control of Hen's castle. The legend here is that Gronje takes a lover and takes to sea, 
and gets into a fight with another family, the McMahon, who would kill her paramour and suffer the consequences at Gronje's hands. Still, despite all this chaos, Gronje remains a good catch, so she gets married for a second time to one Richard Burke, heir to the MacWillian Burke, chief of the Burkes in Lower Connaught, County Mayo, and they have a child, Tybald. But at some point, she seems to have been imprisoned by the Earl of Desmond around 1577. It's not quite clear why. One theory is that Desmond at the time was still demonstrating his loyalty to the English, and maybe she was framed. But hey presto, when she's released, she and her husband do a deal with the English. And by 1581, Richard has indeed become the MacWilliam Burke, the head, as it were. And by 1581, he was knighted by the English too. The background to this is that by this stage, Desmond was in rebellion and the English needed allies. So, probably worth doing a bit of summarising then. In Gronje's life, she is negotiating a path between Gaelic and English parties. And at the top of her priorities, probably, were the fortunes of her family. At once, she has fought with other Gaelic competitors to protect and extend her lands, at others, with the English. But from 1581 to 1583, the Nimal and Burks had aligned with the English. But by 1583, Richard was dead. Now, under Gaelic law, I am told that while a wife had considerable independent authority while married, once widowed, they would come under the authority of a male relative and indeed Gronje may have begun to favour the English because under common law, widows could keep control of their marriage portion in terms of land and so on. And at this point, when she's maybe 55 years old, in her words, she gathered together all her own followers and with 1,000 head of cows and mares and went to live on part of her late husband's territory in Mayo, where she continued to maintain herself and her people by sea and by land. So essentially, Gronje was setting herself up as chief of her people, an exceptional position for a widowed woman, even given the greater political influence that married Gaelic women enjoyed. Her nemesis came in the form of provincial governor Richard Bingham. It seems that she may have initially tried to get on with Bingham, but this was a man very hard to get on with, who ruled Connacht with hideous brutality. In one assize, for example, he had 70 of the defendants hanged. But also it's quite probable that Gronje was playing politics. It's worth, as always, putting modern nationalistic perceptions firmly to one side. Gronje's primary concern was the success of her family, and her son Tybald was fixing to become the MacWillian Burke, so she wanted to support him in that. How he ended up in this position is actually not clear, but it's noteworthy that the Burkes were in revolt against Bingham in both 1586 and 1588. So Bingham himself was very clear, as far as he was concerned, Gronje was at the heart of these rebellions. He accused her of pulling in Scottish mercenaries to help. And things got personal. Her son by her first marriage, Johan, was killed by Bingham's brother and Tybald, her son, was forced to live with Bingham in pledge for Gronje's good behaviour. Nonetheless, rather breathlessly now, given the constant ups and downs, by 1591 Tybald was in line to become the MacWilliam Burke, at which point Bingham arrested him. Extraordinary, Gronje's response 
was to travel to London in the summer of 1593 to visit Elizabeth. We have the extraordinary prospect of Dronia and Elizabeth conversing in Latin because the one spoke no English and the other no Irish. And Dronia cut a deal with Elizabeth. She offered her ships and her men in support of the English administration. She claimed that she had procured all her sons, cousins and followers of the Nimal for the English administration. She made a choice again to get the best from her deal, declaring to Elizabeth that she should be given letters patent for her lands, explaining that under Gaelic law she had no right to her husband's lands, despite having set herself up in Mayo. So Elizabeth was faced with very little practical evidence of Gronia's involvement in rebellion, except the increasingly choleric explosions of fury from Bingham. And so she rejected Bingham's view and she accepted Gronia's deal. She ordered that Tybalt be released. Bingham was furious and dragged his heels, so Gronia went to London for a second time in 1595 and this time Elizabeth's will was duly enforced. Having finally plumped for alliance with the English, Gronia and her son followed through this time. Gronia may have died in 1601 or 1603, but Tybalt emerged as the greatest landowner in Mayo, and in 1627 was created Viscount Mayo, sat in the Irish Parliament, and the line would survive to the end of the 18th century. It's quite a wild story. The central idea is that in 16th century Ireland, it is dangerous to impose modern nationalistic notions on the motivations of the people involved. There really wasn't a Gaelic versus English. Family played the major role. Having said that, in the next episode, we'll see the same basic question in the career of Hugh O'Neill. Without doubt, O'Neill will make an appeal to Gaelic nationalism and a call to defence of Catholicism. But was that his main motivation, or was it once more personal ambition for himself and his family? Let's discuss that next time. OK, please don't forget the Anthony Nolan 50 Mile Slog. Just go to justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash shedcasters to donate or go to the History of England website or Facebook group and you'll find a link there. Thank you so much for listening and for all your feedback. I hope you're enjoying the ride. Good luck and see you all next week. <laughs>